Forgiveness is one of the most Christian of concepts. If you study comparative world religions, what you'll discover is every religion speaks of ethics, every religion speaks of morality, every religion talks about how to structure culture, society, all that sort of stuff. But Christianity's unique contribution is that forgiveness is gained through faith in Christ by our faith in him, and we do it by our, our confession, our repentance to God, and in that process, God forgives us. And that is the most Christian of concepts. This thing is a massive topic. And so for us in our few moments here, we're gonna have to just kind of drill into a couple key kind of observations around forgiveness and only glance by a couple Bible verses. And for some of us in the room, it's just gonna kill us because there's gonna be places you wish I would go and I can't. And there is a depth to this whole topic that you could spend years studying, but we're gonna study the portion that we can. In fact, forgiveness has found its way even as a theme into one of the most famous prayers in all famous prayers, the, what's called Lord's Prayer. Really, it's the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that the Lord instructed his disciples how to pray. In Matthew 6, he says, and just I'm going to quote a little bit of it. He says, Jesus instructing his disciples, he says, we should say this, and forgive us our sins. We're to confess our sins to God. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If you grew up like I did, kind of quasi-Lutheran, we would say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And as a little kid, I'm like, does that mean I forgive the burglar? Because I'm not gonna burgle anybody's house. I'm not a trespasser. But the idea there is, is we're gonna sin against God, so we're gonna confess our sin to God. And then, then in the process of us confessing our sin to God, it's a reminder, hey, we gotta let go of the things that other people have done to us. In fact, Jesus gets more poignant at the end after he's instructed on the prayer, still in Matthew 6, this is 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. That's great. I like that part. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Now that's not great. I don't like that part. Have you ever found yourself as you're reading through the scriptures wishing it was a democracy? I would totally vote stuff out of the Bible. This is that last sentence, the first sentence, I like that one. The people I choose to forgive, God forgives me, but the people I don't choose to forgive, then God has something that he's gonna hold on against me. You catch that? That's hard to miss stuff. That's challenging, stepping on the toes kind of stuff. One of the things I love, I, I go home after the gathering, I come to the gathering pretty much every week, and I go home and I tell my wife, I'm amazed people come and listen to Andy jam the toes. And if you can read through the scripture and you never feel uncomfortable, you are reading it wrong. And I commend you, because you come here week after week, and we all get smacked around a little bit, don't we? Not by Andy, but by God's word. It's instructive, it's surgical. And so here it is, Jesus says, you gotta forgive other people in order to experience forgiveness. I've been a pastor over 20 years. I've officiated a lot of weddings. And when I do like premarital counsel, even sometimes when I do the little homily in the wedding, I never talk about the love stuff because that's why they're there. I don't need to talk about that stuff. I always tell them the stuff that's really gonna be helpful down the road once the love stuff wears off, which is usually about two or three weeks after the wedding. Just fair warning. I always tell them, look, in your relationship, don't worry about saying I love you. You'll do that. You should concentrate on saying I'm sorry. You should learn how to say please forgive me. I did that wrong. 
Uh, my, my own father told me that um, if, if you love someone, you shouldn't have to say you're sorry. I said, where'd you get that from? He was, it was in a movie. There was a movie in the 1970s, and one of the famous lines in the movie is, love means never having to say you're sorry. That is the worst piece of heresy. It will ruin every decent relationship. If you never say you're sorry to someone, you might as well say goodbye to that friend because that friend is not going to put up with you for long. At least they shouldn't. And so you're going to have to, we're going to have to get used to the idea of forgiveness in relationships, confessing our sins that we have wronged another person and accept the forgiveness and then also the willingness to forgive other people. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking, well, that's easy for some people. Some people have misdemeanor infractions against them. You know, they have the, they, they tell you about it. I, I was lined up for that spot right by the door at Target. Someone kind of zipped in with a little Honda Civic, took my spot, really ticked me off. That's a misdemeanor, my friends. Uh, I was in traffic, I got cussed out. At least I think I got cussed out. I'm not a good rip, lip reader, but the gestures and everything all together, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they were upset at me. That, my friend, is a misdemeanor. You know, someone, you overhear a comment saying, you know, that shirt didn't match those pants and it hurts you a little bit, you know? Because you, you picked out that outfit and they're criticizing you. That is a misdemeanor. No, no, it, Forgiveness counts when we're talking about felony level stuff. What I mean by that is the person at work that has said some pretty terrible things about you and you're confident that's why you didn't get the promotion. That's a felony. The, um, the guy that you thought was the one, he got bored with you and now he's dating your good friend. For, wait, no, former good friend. Felony. Uh, your older brother. Instead of being a role model, took his frustrations out, you, out on you and, and you were the punching bag. And instead of a happy childhood full of like tender memories, it's pain. That's felony level stuff. That's where rubber hits the road in forgiveness. So where do we turn? Well, we can't turn to our culture, can we? Our culture, I don't mean the church. I'm saying our culture, broadly speaking, is the most unforgiving culture. Just, let me just give you a few little snapshot illustrations from somewhat recent history. U.S. Senator out of Minnesota, former comedian, picture taken, committing what is a lewd act of a form of sexual harassment. Wrong for him to do it. The man goes hoarse apologizing for what he recognizes he should not have done. And he is forced to resign. No forgiveness. Uh, currently, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada. A picture emerges. He's horrified that 20 years ago he dressed up in a, as a costume party in what is truly ethnically insensitive. Now, what you guys are not necessarily aware of, I'm old enough, that 20 years ago it was real common. There are a lot of public officials holding their breath, hoping no one has a Polaroid to show from their background. And this guy is running for his political future. Will he be forgiven? No, I'm not sure. A couple weeks ago, a newly minted cast member of Saturday Night Live, which is edgy and raw and oftentimes inappropriate, a couple years ago, the comedian who just got hired, it's revealed that he said some stuff that he should not have said, and he's super apologetic for it. But by the way, comedy for well, roughly 
all recorded history has always been sort of on edge and inappropriate. And this guy was on edge and inappropriate. His career is over. He was uninvited to be part of the cast. Another fella, he holds up a sign behind a sportscaster. Maybe you've seen this one. And he says, I'm out of beer. Venmo me some money or Venmo me some money or PayPal me or whatever it is. Send me money. And he not only gets a couple hundred bucks, he ends up with tens of thousands of bucks and he realizes, eh, this I shouldn't do. So he turns it over into a charity for a children's hospital. The numbers reach close to a million bucks. The beer company wants to put his face on a can until it turns out that when he was like 15 or 16, he said some stuff on Twitter they shouldn't have said. And he's really apologetic now. Now, I don't know these people. I'm not, I'm not defending them, nor am I judging them. What I'm saying is that our culture commits social capital punishment. If you don't believe me, just take to social media tonight. Say something that you know. I probably shouldn't say this. See the repercussions. Our culture knows nothing of grace. Our culture knows nothing of forgiveness. And this is where the scriptures speak with clarity. Now, Andy has spent the last several weeks, and he's done so, I think, brilliantly around this whole topic of navigating through conflict. The scriptures have a ton to say about conflict. In fact, really, the scriptures are the recorded history of conflict in ancient society. And some of the conflict we look at and we're like, I get that, I've committed that. Even the Ten Commandments is a record or a record of how not to experience conflict. The first four is how not to experience conflict with God. The last six commandments are not how not to experience conflict with other people. Like just for instance, you put another God before God, you're gonna have conflict with God. You use God's name in vain, you're gonna have a problem with God, some sort of conflict. If you steal something from another person, you're gonna have a conflict with a person. If you are in a challenging marriage and you decide to step out on your spouse, the marriage, believe it or not, will not get better. Conflict will develop. In fact, if you don't step out, but you just look at another person's no oh, possession, property, car, house, lawn, clothing, whatever, and in your heart you desire that from them, the Bible calls it coveting, you're gonna have a conflict with the person. But we're not talking about conflict tonight. Andy did a great job covering that. No, we're gonna talk about what do you do when conflict's in the rear view mirror? It's already been done. You've already experienced the conflict. How do you go forward when the conflict has been done? Let's just run through the scenarios. There's, a, there's about six different, five different scenarios right here. Let's just run through them real quick. Here's the scenarios that are in the rear view mirror. You have confronted a person, there's been some sort of conflict and that person apologizes, they repent and the relationship is restored. Guess what? You're still gonna have to deal with forgiveness in that situation. Scenario two, you, you go through all that but they apologize and for a time things are better, but the change doesn't last and they go back to their kind of offensive ways. Still gonna have to forgive. Scenario number three, the person apologizes, but you struggle to let the pain go. You still have to figure out where forgiveness is. Scenario four, they refuse to apologize. You confront them, you bring the data. You're like a lawyer and they bring, they see it and yet they refuse to apologize, the relationship ends, and you're still hurt, guess what? You gotta still figure out how forgiveness fits even in that. Scenario five, you can't confront or resolve the issue for a variety of reasons. 
Maybe the person's too dangerous to talk to. Maybe they're incarcerated. Maybe they're dead. And you still have to figure out where forgiveness fits in that. Every one of these scenarios requires that we consider forgiveness. In fact, I think that's why the early church leader, the Apostle Paul, he wrote it brilliantly and briefly in Colossians 3.13. He says, bear with one another. In other words, kind of in our vernacular, you might say put up with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, Paul connects our motive for forgiving other people with our reception of forgiveness from God. If we want to forgive others, we have to understand God is the first mover in it. We are not given an option not to forgive. Now, here's a question. Why would God do that to us? Really, why would he? Why wouldn't he just say, you know, there's some people you don't have to forgive. You know, I mean, there's a line. If they never say they're sorry, you don't have to forgive them. Why wouldn't he draw a line somewhere and allow us the freedom of not forgiving? There's a, a, a great filmmaker in our uh, culture today, a guy named Tyler Perry, writes a bunch of uh, kind of comedies with a kind of a deeper meaning. And in one from a few years ago, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, he has these two characters interacting. One's kind of playing mentor to the other one. And Helen has just found out that her husband has been committing adultery for years. And this reality has struck her. And she's trying to navigate what to do. And so she turns to her friend Myrtle. And here's what Myrtle says. Myrtle says, you know, I know this man put a hurting on you, baby. But you've got to forgive him. No matter what he done, you've got to forgive him. You got not for him. You got to forgive him, not for him, but for you. And Helen says, forgive him for me. And Myrtle says, when, get this, you can't miss this line. This is a good line. When someone hurts you, they take power over you. When someone hurts you, they take power over you. If you don't forgive them, they keeps the power. Let me say that. When someone hurts you, they take power over you. If you don't forgive them, they keeps the power. Forgive them, baby, and after you forgive him, forgive yourself. And if you don't think Tyler Perry knows what he's talking about, then let's turn back to the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul is just far more blunt about it. He says this in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Get rid, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander as well as all types of evil behavior. You've experienced some conflict. You've experienced some difficulty. There's some temptations. Just get rid of all that stuff and replace it with something else. Instead, replace it with this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And you're hurt and you're betrayed, and what do you do with it? There are some options. There's some very common options on the table. And Paul lists out a handful of them. Option one, you've been hurt. Just swallow a little seed called bitterness. It goes down easy. It tastes good. It just kind of sits in here. No one even has to know about it. You just kind of nurse that idea. You just let that seed germinate until it becomes a forest and destroys your soul. Bitterness. You know a bitter person? You can usually see it on their face, can't you? I mean, sometimes... Truth be told, some of you are looking, you look every morning at that face in the mirror. And there's bitterness in there because there was hurt back there. 
And when the bitterness first took root, it felt kind of good. And it felt like it was small and easily contained and you could, you could kind of control it. But now you bring bitterness with you and it shows up at the party. You drag him along, her along in effigy and you beat him or you beat her like a pinata at every social occasion. But what happens to the bitter person? Oh, the phone quits ringing. They, they, um, they don't get as many text messages inviting them out. And they end up feeling more isolated and alone because our, just quick question, how many of you love hanging out with bitter people? Anybody, anybody, big fans that just hang, does it feel refreshing and good to be with a bitter person? No, no, so the person becomes bitter and what happens in isolation, the bitterness becomes what? More bitter. And now, now you really nurse and coalesce the idea. And bitterness is just expanding and taking over. Well, that's an option. There's, a, there's another couple options in here that are almost hard to distinguish. Paul says, put away rage and anger. So there's option two is rage, and option three is anger. And here's an easy way of kind of remembering it for those of you who like movies. Rage is more overt like a wrecking ball. Anger is more like, this is like the land of passive aggressive. Rage, you know, anger initially is hard to detect. So the way I kind of see it is, rage is like Keanu Reeves in every John Wick movie. There will be a, you, you kill his dog and take the car, guess what? He will take you out, everyone you know, everyone who works for you, your business, and every associate of the business. That's a wrecking ball. That, that is rage. That is the ground of the fractured wrist from punching through uh, a piece of drywall. This is the, the uh, cut you get on your hand from picking up the broken dish that you threw to the floor out of rage. But anger, anger is more like Liam Neeson in a Taken movie, right? Calm, chill. I can hear the clock on the wall behind you and I know where you are. I have a set of skills, I will find you. You will rue the day you messed with my family. That is anger. Now, if you know what I'm talking about from those films, shame on you, you're Christians. You shouldn't be watching movies like that. I mean, I don't know. I've just read about those movies. I've never seen them myself. But that is an option. When you've been wronged, you can become full of rage. You can become full of anger. You can become full of bitterness. And then you could also choose option four. That's just harsh words. I like, that's the new international version. Some versions that are more heady and more academic say clamor. Isn't that a good word? It just means loud. This is the person who creates a scene. You've been hurt or wounded. You just raise the voice. You let everybody know. This is the person that makes a scene in a public place and is really like a super fun to watch when you're not at the table, right? Everyone's embarrassed except the audience, but everybody in the scene is like, oh, I'm dying inside. But in in that option, you you just kind of go ballistic and you yell and you shout and you make a scene. And when you've been hurt, it sometimes feels good just to give it to that person. Option five is a, is a little more quiet. That's a good way to handle it. This is, this is one I recommend if you don't want to make a scene or destroy the furniture. This is good old-fashioned slander. 
Slander is not gossip. Gossip is telling something about someone that's true that you shouldn't say. Slander is when you mix fiction and fact together in a way that sounds real or it's highly speculative, but it's quite damaging to the other person's character. And Paul says you've got to put away slander. In the old Greek language that Paul wrote in, the word is blasphemia, which is the word blasphemy. If you slander God, that's blasphemy in heretical sense. And sometimes we use terms like blasphemy in church settings. And we're not used to seeing that word amongst people. But you can blaspheme another person. You're just saying something that's not true about the person. And it makes you feel like superior because you're like marshalling your sources. And you're getting a little army around you to think bad thoughts about that person. You feel a little better because after all, they offended and hurt you. So they kind of have it coming. Even if you say things about them that aren't really true, they might be true. You don't even know. You're speculating. So maybe you're not slandering. Maybe you're just gossiping. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Option six is sort of the coverall. He just says all types of evil behavior. In other words, some of the old languages say malice. This is like the meat and potatoes of social media, of Twitter and Facebook. This is just all kinds of damaging things that can be done or said. And Paul says, you know what? When you've been wronged, here's a few options for you. But they're not good options. They're not healthy options. You ever really respected someone who slandered? You ever heard someone just lose it and think, man, I'd like to learn how to lose it like she loses it? You ever seen a guy hit something and thought, man, that's a real powerful punch. Yeah, I wish I destroyed my apartment like he did. That's going to come out of his deductible. That'll be, oh man, that's manly. You never think that thought, do you? And Paul says there's a better option, and the better option is forgiveness. Now, I, this has to be said, though, in this topic, is that forgiveness does not necessarily mean restoration. Sometimes we hear, hear the word forgiveness, and you're like, you don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. I can't be in a room with her. Maybe you shouldn't be in a room with her. Maybe you shouldn't be in a room with him. I mean, there, there's some wisdom in geographical distance between some people. If, if you were abused, distance might be a very wise decision. Now, I want to be clear about something. I want to say abuse in the way that abuse should be defined. Sometimes in our culture, we turn, we, we throw away on terms, and I, I, I think we should be cautious about the terms we use. Don't you hate it when people's phones go off? I do too. My bad. Should have put that one on Do Not Disturb. See if they call back. If they do, I'm putting them on the microphone. Uh, where was I? That's right. A highly sensitive area, right? Before the phone. There are some relationships that, that ought not be brought back in close proximity. Abuse is one of them, and we should be real careful about the terminology we use. We should use it as accurately as we can. And sometimes our culture today expands out definitions and the risk that we run when we do that is we turn it into nothing. But I'm saying if there has been abuse, it's wise to have distance. If you were in a bad dating relationship, you don't have to be alone with that person again just to experience forgiveness. If you're dealing with a completely calloused and different person that just won't listen, then maybe, maybe a one-on-one -on -one conversation isn't the right move. What do you do in particular 
when you can't get the level of closure. When you go through a process or try to go through a process and you can't get there, what do you do? Let me give you a couple suggestions that God gives us in his scripture. One of them is straight from Jesus. If you're dealing with somebody and you can't deal with them because they are stiff arming you, then here's what you should do. You should do what Jesus said. Just bang off your shoes. He literally said it. It's in Matthew 10, 16. You can check my work. Write it down. Look at it later. Jesus chooses 12 disciples. He sends them out on ministry. It's not exactly the same scenario we're talking, but the principle is still true. He sends them out to do ministry, and he says, if people welcome you in, do the ministry. And if someone says, take a hike, I don't want anything to do with you, you take your sandals off, and out on the outskirts of town, you bang the dust off your sandals. Now, before you go and, like, after the gathering tonight, find that person that might be here, take off your shoes and, like, bang them off in their face, that's not what I'm saying. And that wasn't what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying, if you get rejected in town, take off your sandals, go, well, you're going to hell. He didn't, that's not what he said. He's just saying, look, move on. Sometimes you just got to go, well, that chapter's over. It might actually help out on your patio, out on your balcony tonight or some point this week. Just kind of go, all right, God, his name was Tom. And you just, you just go, God, I'm just going to trust you to deal with all that. If, if, if that's not it, then, then the second thing you could do is you can literally just give it to God. It's, it's actually a, in another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, this is Romans 12, 19. He says, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Now, that's an interesting line. Sometimes we paint God as like in a bad mood in the Old Testament, But in the New Testament, he's super cool. He's good with everything. Same God through the whole thing. Perfect in both Testaments. Consistent in both Testaments. And what he says through the Apostle Paul in Romans is, don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for his discipline. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I'll repay, says the Lord. And sometimes what you have to say is, Lord, I'm not going to get justice on this earth with this person. Lord, would, would you deal with them? There's some good psalms, by the way, like some of the, some of the psalms, beautiful poetic psalms. The Lord, let their teeth rot out of their head. Lord, may, their, may they never have another meal again. You know, it's in the psalms. I'm, I'm sort of generally quoting a couple of the psalms. It's in there. I'm not suggesting that you let your prayer life become sort of focused on what you wish negatively would happen to another person. That's not what I'm saying. There's a place for you to be able to go, God, I can't handle this. there's going to be no justice near as I can tell. God, would you just let your justice prevail? Would you do something with it? Now, this is revolutionary concepts, my friends. Now, we read this stuff and we go, oh, that's an ancient document. You go back in time. If we could go back to Roman culture when this was written 2,000 years ago, this was a culture that was, they loved vengeance. If you took my lamb, I would kill your livestock. If, if you attack my cousin, I'd kill your kids. If you, uh, if, you, if you broke my fence, I'd burn your house down. It's part of the culture. It was a vengeance culture. There's actually parts of the world that still function this way. And, and there were whole cultural attitudes. It was like, that's how it ought to be. And then, and then in the Mosaic Law, which was written 1,500, 2,000 years before the time of Christ, then 
there was like, no, if someone like pokes you in the eye, you poke them in the eye, just an eye for an eye. Like if he pokes you in the eye, you really shouldn't cut his hands off. That's taking it too far. That's escalation. Let's not have escalation. Let's have justice. And for us in our culture, we're like, well, that sounds terrible. That was a massive improvement. But then with Christ comes, let me handle this. Let me handle the justice of this. Don't poke his eye out. Now, this is, this, there's a very, very good reason for us to be patient with other people. And let me give you a practical, practical reason. And, and this, is, this is a, there is a really good reason, really, really good reason to let God handle doling out his justice. And it's, it's because, and this is going to sound crazy, it's because sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes our judgment is off a tick. Sometimes we perceive something that's not there. Sometimes we experience a slight and no slight was intended. And so in our heart, we're like, Lord, make them, make them disappear. Let their car tomorrow not start. And when they get out of it, let it blow up, <laughs> burn to ash. And actually, it was all because you were hurt by something you perceived they said. And you, like, you let something just fester inside of you. We, we live in an extremely judgmental culture, and I'm not talking about the church. We live in a culture that thrives on judgmentalism. Have you, have you noticed this? How fast all of a sudden people will begin to criticize something, and then later they're like, oh, our bad. Whoops, sorry about that. We got that one wrong. And we all can be prone to do this. And this is where we, this is where it makes sense to say, okay, God, I'm going to let you take care of this. Because sometimes while God takes care of it is he lets us see what's really happening. And then later we're like, whoa, I got that one wrong. I got that one really wrong. The apostle Paul speaks of this too. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, I, I care. This is a good one, by the way. This is a good verse. Let me say it again so you can write this down. This is a good one for all of us in this room. 1 Corinthians 4 three through four. Paul says this, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. That, that feels liberating. That feels kind of good. That's a verse to memorize. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Now that's interesting. He says, my conscience is clear. This is where it gets fascinating. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. That doesn't make me right. Just because my conscience is clear doesn't mean I'm right. It is the Lord who judges me. And who better to judge the adversary than the Lord? Because in the process, he might highlight something for us too. Now, some of you in this whole talk might've gone, this is a good talk. I know some people that need to forgive other people. I'm a very forgiving person, so I didn't need this talk so much. I could probably have given the talk because I'm known for my forgiving attitude. I, I have the aura of forgiveness. I'm a very forgiving person. And maybe you are very, very spiritually oriented. Maybe that is true. But there are some lookalikes, there are some substitutes for forgiveness that look like forgiveness, but we should be on the lookout for because they aren't forgiveness, but they have symptoms that look like forgiveness. Let me give you four of them. Here's substitute number one, avoidance. Avoidance. Someone wrongs you, they say something awful about you, they did something awful to you, undeniable. It's, it's not a matter of opinion, it's true. You say nothing, you do nothing, and you say, I'm forgiving. 
but you might be a runner. And so your roommate just, just the worst. And you're like, I'm forgiving. So you go to Home Depot, get some boxes, and you move out of the apartment. Get yourself a new apartment with a new roommate, and hopefully this one will be better than the last four. You're avoiding. You know, you have some um, altercations with some of the people at work, opinions kind of ding each other, and your supervisor, you're just pretty sure your supervisor doesn't like you. But you're a pretty gracious person. You don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to bring this up. So you just get a new job. You, my friend, are not forgiving. You're avoiding. You only think you're forgiving because it makes you feel better, but it is not forgiving. Substitute number two, cowardice. Now, this is going to sound harsh, cowardice, but the good news is if, if this is you, you won't tell me afterward anyhow because, well, you know, you know. You're afraid, fear-driven. You're afraid you'll lose the friend, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the roommate, the job. You're afraid. If I speak up here, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me dearly. And maybe, maybe you live this way for a very good reason. Maybe you were raised in an environment that was very volatile and fear-filled. Maybe if you would have spoken up for yourself, you would have been pushed down anyhow. And so you just learn this behavior. It's just survival technique. You just practice cowardice. Dad was constantly, um, constantly putting you down, or mom was a critic, or a sibling, or the, the environment you grew up in. Something did something. At least that's what the psychologists usually say. Cowardice came from somewhere and you need help and you need support, small group, maybe a counselor. But cowardice is not forgiving. If it's driven by fear, you are not forgiving. You're just practicing cowardice. And that's a substitute for genuine forgiveness. Substitute number three, over spiritualization. And you're in the right environment for this one. If you're in church for any length of time, you're going to hear, usually ripped out of context, uh, to turn the other cheek, to bear one another burden. And so you're hurt and you're offended and you think, I'm going to go talk to them, but first I'm going to pray. And then you just keep praying about the thing. And somewhere in prayer, it feels like the Lord guiding you to say nothing to anyone because you are so spiritual. You don't need to confront them. I mean, it might help them, by the way, if you did confront them. It might. But that would be something that would make you uncomfortable. And so you, in your discomfort, just hit your knees to the ground and pray once again. Lord, help me forgive this nasty, vile creature full of vice and sin. Lord, would you do what you need to do for them? And nowhere in there does it like, seem right for you to be the one to go talk to them because you are spiritual and praying for them. And it's a big risk. It is not forgiveness. Now, here's my personal favorite. Substitute number four for forgiveness, compartmentalization. Do you know what this one is? Probably, are, probably the guys in the room know what this one is. In fact, actually, a lot of people practice this one, and they don't know they practice it until someone points it out. Most men practice this by instinct because dad taught it to you, and his dad taught it to him. It's actually, again, I don't mean to sound stereotypical because women can compartmentalize too, but this is how it happens. A hurt happens. Something awful happens and you put it in a box and you put tape on it. You don't mark the box. You put it on a shelf in the attic and then you lock the attic door and you put a sign, do not enter on the door. And you go, problem solved. Not a problem at all. 
fact is, this one's, it, this one's my instinct. This is the one that I am prone to practice. I didn't know I was prone to practice it. I was, um, I was uh, deeply, deeply betrayed and hurt at work, not here at Crossings. This was back when we lived and ministered in California. And, uh, and so there was an incident at work. It was deeply painful. And my wife, she wanted to process it. And to me, there's nothing quite as bothersome as processing things. I just wanted to put it where it belonged. In fact, the person who hurt me, I had already put him in a box, taped up the box and buried him. I mean, not literally. I mean, I mean, if I could have gotten away with it, and I don't mean legally, I know that would have been against the law, but if I could have at least gotten away with burying them alive, I totally would have done it. Um, no, I mean, well, I might've done it, but I probably wouldn't have done it. And my wife, she was like, babe, you don't, you realize what you're doing? You're compartmentalizing. You don't, you're coping with this stuff. You don't deal with it. And so I asked her, I'm like, well, what does that mean? And she's like, well, you're so hurt and you've already kind of exited out of the hurt. And yet the hurt is still there. It's still festering inside you. You haven't forgiven. You haven't really actually done anything with it. You're just setting it aside for later. So it can come out and all kinds of like behavior, you, you have just sort of rammed it up onto a shelf so that you don't have to deal with it. You've compartmentalized it. And, and, and I was like, babe, I'm, I'm, it's kind of you to notice that I can compartmentalize. I took it as a compliment at first. I was like, I'm a master compartmentalizer. Now that you describe it, that's a skill. I should teach some seminars on how to compartmentalize. You can move on with life. And she was like, no, this is not good for your health. It's not good for your faith. And I didn't see the problem at the time, but I hadn't forgiven. I hadn't properly worked with it. So what do we do? What do we do if we're prone towards the lookalike, the cheap substitutes? We return to what Paul said. Instead, instead of all that stuff, instead of fake forgiveness, Instead of actually doing conflict resolution the way that our culture does, Paul says instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And what Paul might say in another way is that we should, we should practice kindness in this, like we should, have, we should have tough skin, but we should have tender hearts we should have soft hearts. And too often, too often we end up with tender and soft skin. We end up with hard hearts. We end up putting some armor around the heart. We armor plate it. We stop letting people in. And it matters. Getting this right matters. Keeping the soft heart matters. A soft heart toward God. A soft heart towards others. And so here's the questions. These are the questions for, for us to reflect on. Uh, you have a 120 seconds. And during this next 120 seconds, here are the questions. Am I truly a forgiving person? Am I? Or am I driven by avoidance, cowardice, over-spiritualizing? Or maybe like me, prone towards compartmentalizing? Do I harbor any bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, malice? Would anybody say I do that? Would any of my friends, have any of my friends ever said, gosh, you, you really have some bitterness here? 
I'm not sure that what you said about that person is true. It seems like there's a lot of emotion that is not healthy directed towards that situation or that person. Has anyone hurt or offended me? Do I harbor those things towards that person? Third, I didn't ask, is there a person? I asked, who? Who's the person? We all have them. I have a friend who's, um, the person they need to forgive has been dead for 20 years. 20 years. And they talk about him like they are a ghost over their shoulder. That person might be long gone out of your life. You don't maybe even need to write him a note. Maybe you can. But who is the person I need to forgive? And finally, what do I need to do next? All of that, one through three, that's great. Superb. But what do I do? What do I need to do next? Do I need to talk to the person? Do I need to say, look, I've been holding on to something. I need to forgive you. Maybe that's not a wise move. Maybe it's not a possible move. Maybe I need to talk to a friend about this. Not gossip. Careful. Don't slander. Maybe I need to talk to a, a pastor, a spiritual mentor, a counselor. And so over the next 120 seconds, and we give you this time of reflection, those are questions to just let permeate your soul, marinate on those questions. Am I? Do I? Who is? What do I need to do next? Lord, give us insight and wisdom where we have little to none. Give us wise and discerning friends who will come alongside, challenge, and encourage. Lord, reveal to us what needs to be revealed in the way that you do so well with your tender mercy. Lord, help us to be forgiving people. Help us resist what this culture normally does. This culture embraces bitterness and anger. We love to attack. It's what our culture does. But that's not what you did. It's not what you do. And you invite us into an entirely countercultural way of living. Help us live your way. Give us that courage. Give us that strength.